Good evening and welcome to Point of View. I'm Chris Berg. Thanks so much for joining us on this Monday evening. Coming up here in just a moment, Minnesota Governor Tim Walz has named a brand new commissioner, commissioner of the Department of Human Services. Um, stick around. His choice may surprise you considering some of the recent allegations of fraud. So we'll get to that in just a moment. We start tonight, though, with, of course, the shocking news about the sicko pedophile Jeffrey Epstein. As I'm sure many of you know, he passed away on Saturday. We're going to call it that for now. Uh, from what they're saying is a suicide. Many people clearly debating whether it was a suicide or something else. All I want, I'm hoping all that you want, no matter what went down here, is just, just get to the truth. I mean, how this happened is more than absurd. So somebody just get to the truth about what happened with Epstein. There is some light at the end of the tunnel. I'll tell you about that here in just a moment as well. But I think it's important to also remember this, and that is the timing of this news regarding the death of Jeffrey Epstein. I want to remind you, on Friday, we had this huge, huge document dump of over 2,000 pages. It was from an unsealed defamation lawsuit. Bring this graphic up, please. It also included depositions, um, police incident reports, photographs, receipts, flight logs, and even a memoir written by a woman who says she was a sex trafficking victim of Epstein. And this is important to note, Epstein and his acquaintances. In case you haven't heard, some of those acquaintances that have been implicated in these depositions, in this document dump, were former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson, former U.S. Senate Majority Leader George Mitchell, Prince Andrew, and that's just to name a few. Then, obviously, the news broke um, that Epstein had passed. But also what's interesting is this. So on Friday, to bring the timing piece up again, for some unbeknown reason, which hopefully, again, we're going to get to the truth of, Epstein had a cellmate. Well, his cellmate was removed from his cell at the Manhattan Correctional Facility for absolutely no known reason on Friday, just before his death. And then, of course, if you look back at prior incidents was inside the Manhattan Correctional Facility, because that's where Manafort and El Chapo were, her, were held. There's documentation that there's always two cameras on 24-7. The cameras are never off. And all of a sudden, Epstein passes, and the cameras just happen to be off. The guards just happen not to follow protocol. Coincidence? Conspiracy theory? I don't know. All I want is the truth in this one, because as we all know, conspiracy theories ran wild over the weekend. Now, the good news is Attorney General Bill Barr says he is going to get to the bottom of this. Again, we'll see. Here's more on the story from CBS News. Attorney General William Barr is promising the investigation into Jeffrey Epstein's alleged sex trafficking ring is far from over despite Epstein's apparent suicide. Let me assure you that this case will continue on against anyone who was complicit with Epstein. Any co-conspirators should not rest easy. The Justice Department is also investigating how the 66-year-old disgraced financier died less than three weeks after surviving a previous apparent suicide attempt. We will get to the bottom of what happened. One source tells CBS News Epstein hanged himself, but the medical examiner has not yet released results of the autopsy. According to the New York Times, guards at the jail were supposed to check on him every 30 minutes, but that procedure was not followed the night before his death. We are now learning of serious irregularities at this facility that are deeply concerning and demand a thorough investigation. 
Sources familiar with the operations here at the Metropolitan Correctional Center say guards were working extreme overtime shifts to make up for staffing shortages. Epstein's death follows the unsealing of more than 2,000 pages of documents, many containing graphic allegations against Epstein and allegations that his close friend, Ghislaine Maxwell, found teenage girls for Epstein and his friends. There are allegations that that Miss Maxwell was an active participant in the sexual abuse. Maxwell denies the allegations. Mark Liverman, CBS News, New York. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, there is a light here, if you will, at the end of the tunnel, kind of centering this situation. Now, because of Epstein's death, that opens up pretty much everything to be investigated. Before I share with you the light at the end of the tunnel, also, there's a bunch of conspiracy theories about the Clinton body count, the Trump body count, but I want to show you this. Uber liberal, because I saw this over the weekend on Twitter, Uber liberal Bill Maher on March 5th of 2015, 2015, tweeted this out, and I can only show you some of it because we're on network television, but he said, Hillary's emails, I want to see Bill's saying, hey, Epstein, gas up the plane, the Lolita Express, let's go to mm, Island, which we all know to be known now as Pedophilia Island. Now, this tweet is somewhat important because I'm sure you've seen the pictures of Pedophilia Island, the island that Epstein owned. Well, finally, because I've been wondering why the guy's locked up, um, he, he's, he's been indicted, why aren't we going to this island and confiscating? Because if you heard about Epstein, he had everything there rigged with cameras on this island. So I want to bring this uh, next graphic up, please. The good news is, is today the FBI raided Pedophile Island. So there was a bunch of FBI people there today. Uh, as I said a moment ago, hopefully they're going to get access to all the video that's there. Someone told me earlier today that Epstein also kept scrupulous notes of where he was, who was with him, what he did. Again, all I want is the truth. The one thing I can guarantee tonight, because there's a lot of speculation in the story, the one thing I can guarantee tonight, there's a lot of high-profile people that are sweating right now seeing those FBI agents on Pedophile Island. All right, today the Trump administration changed how legal, it's important, legal immigrants um, that are not, they're not U.S. citizens, will be, will be able to get access to essentially your tax dollars through government benefits. This is just one of the ways that the Trump administration continues to move towards a more merit-based system. I want to share with you more about the story from CBS News. The Trump administration has issued a new rule which could make it harder for legal immigrants who may need public assistance to become citizens. A poor person can be prepared to be self-sufficient. Many have been through the history of this country. Federal law currently requires people seeking green cards and legal status to prove they won't be a burden to the U.S. or what's called a public charge. The new rule expands the definition of public charge to immigrants using government benefits, including housing, food stamps, and some Medicaid coverage. And what we're looking for here are uh, people who are going to live with us either their whole lives or ultimately become citizens uh, who can stand on their own two feet. Sarah McTarnahan of the Urban Institute has been looking at the potential impact of the rule change. So public benefits exist in this country for a reason, and they're a really vital support to low-income working families. The Trump administration says the rules will not impact immigrant children who are U.S. citizens, but researchers say it will likely keep immigrants who need help from asking for it. 
fact, even though the rule hasn't been active or applied, we've already been seeing uh, immigrants kind of change their decision making about use of public benefits. Um, and I think starting to see some early impacts of that as well. The newly defined rule is set to go into effect October 15th. I want to show you some data about why President Trump is doing this, moving this forward. If we can bring this graphic up, but you can see here the share of non-U.S. citizens receiving public benefits. So from Medicaid, another uh, program called CHIP, roughly 44% of those non-citizens are getting access to some form of medical care, even though, again, they are non-citizens. You've also got SNAP and food stamp programs, roughly 20% of them. This is from 2014 to 2016 are getting access to those benefits. So one of the side effects of this that they think is going to happen is because if you can bring up a family and not have access to, to medical benefits, food stamps, you're going to see immigration from the Northern Triangle, even from Mexico, start to decrease. We'll see if that bears out to be true. The July numbers were down dramatically. Now, is that because it's so hot? Many people say, hey, it's so hot along this trek in July that a lot of people don't do it. Could it be because of what Mexico is doing with Guatemala? Now that we've made Guatemala a third, uh, excuse me, a safe third country. So there's a myriad of reasons. I think at the end of the day, the good news is the numbers are down. We're hoping to have more tomorrow night here on Point of View from Ken Cuccinelli, who now is running the U.S. Customs and Immigration System. Because I think one of the key questions is no one really has a dollar figure on, hey, if you're not a, a legal U.S. citizen or a green card holder, how much are we spending on that right now? Like, what's the total tax dollar amount that we're spending from that scenario? Nobody has that answer. We're hoping to have that for you uh, tomorrow night. Speaking about uh, those kind of programs, Medicaid, healthcare, and whatnot, the Minnesota, Minnesota Department of Human Services, as we know, has had a lot of issues as of late. There's been a tremendous amount of allegations of fraud. A uh, recent director or commissioner for DHS just abruptly quit. Their chief of staff quit. So DHS is in need of some very serious help to get things back on the rail. So today, Minnesota Governor Tim Walz named a new commissioner who's going to start September 3rd. But get this, he named the former head, which a lot of people I know don't necessarily like this organization in our area, but it's the former head of Minnesota LSS, Lutheran Social Services, Jody Harpstead. She's now going to head the biggest department in Minnesota government. Government's got roughly a 13 billion dollar budget. I want to share with you some of what uh, Ms. Harpstead has to say earlier today about her new appointment. I am particularly proud to join the dedicated people of the department whom I know to be the same caring and competent people that I have worked with at LSS. I accepted this position because I could. LSS of Minnesota is stable and healthy and has strong leaders throughout the organization, including the board of directors. I'm free to bring my 39 years of experience in managing people in large organizations to the department. As the governor said, I once co-led the pacemaker and defibrillator product lines at Medtronic with some 6,000 employees. LSS has over 2,300 employees spread all over the state of Minnesota. I'm eager to see how my private sector skills can be useful in the public sector. Hopefully she'll be the right person for the job. There's a lot of issues right now in that department. Um, again, keep in mind, she's from LSS. What's one of the main revenue streams for LSS? Lutheran Social Services is refugee resettlement. Why do I bring that up? Because last July, a gentleman by the name of Scott Steelman, Stillman, excuse me, he's a former DHS employee. He's a whistleblower. He testified in front of the Minnesota Senate last July 
I want to share with you just a small excerpt from his testimony. It's up on Facebook if you want to see the whole thing. But the fraud that he talked about taking place within DHS, he said, was absolutely frightening. But I want to play this specific clip for you because listen closely to the kind of fraud he's talking about, where it's happening, and again, where the new DHS commissioner is from, Lutheran Social Services. If I could mention some of the things that I've worked on, they were daycare frauds based out of Department of Human Services, um, and they were significant. They were overwhelming. The dollar amounts were, were um, upwards of 15 million. Um, I was overwhelmed with the data that I was receiving. I was overwhelmed with what I was seeing on the computers and on their cell phones. I tracked individuals overseas using their phone to um, compounds in the desert in countries that are not friendly to the United States where they would spend months over there while they were operating their DHS daycare business. And then why my job was to determine if they were communicating while they were overseas and uh, provide that information. And that, that's how uh, Fazia Ali's case went. I found the emails that she sent from Kenya to Hennepin County while she was billing for daycare that she wasn't even present for. I want to cut it out there because he just mentioned Kenya. Kenya is very, very important, especially in the context of LSS, because what's in Kenya? Some of the largest refugee camps on the planet right now, and you've got LSS who finds, especially think about Elon Omar, a lot of refugees that come from Kenya into the United States, specifically Minnesota, because as we know in the past, there's been the family reunification scenario. So once you start to get like they have now in Minnesota, a large Somali population that come through the Kenyan refugee camps, they continue to put them there for the family reunification aspect. So we will see if Jody, this new DHS commissioner, can actually flush out uh, the fraud that's taken place and how she will do. Fingers crossed. Let's hope she does an outstanding job. Now, tomorrow, the Minnesota Senate is going to hold a hearing to look at some of the issues facing the Department of Human Services. So we'll have an update on that for you tomorrow. Hopefully, they'll have some breaking news coming out of that testimony and that meeting. Now, one of the things close to home here over the last six years, as many of you know, sitting at home, farm income has dropped dramatically, uh, roughly 45% over the last six years, according to the USDA. So today, CNBC ran a story with a headline saying this, Trump is ruining our markets. Struggling farmers are losing a huge customer to the trade war. That would be China. So there's obviously a lot of conversation about this. There's no doubt that there's a lot of stress right now in the ag community. But is this trade war having an impact on who the farmers and middle America will ultimately support in 2020? There's a mixed bag. There's some polls that say his support is dwindling. We talked about that last week. But then also on Sunday, you had Chuck Todd from Meet the Press talking to actual farmers in Iowa and sharing some pretty interesting polling data from some of the heartland ag states. Here's more from Meet the Press. Trump also came close in farming stronghold Minnesota. He only lost that traditionally blue state by less than two percentage points. And while farmers have been a big part of his loyal base of support, they are already feeling the impact of this trade war. U.S. exports to China have plummeted by over $10 billion in the last year. Farm bankruptcies are up 13% in the last year, the highest level since 2012. 
But so far, that is not spelling political trouble for the president. A fact we heard from the farmers we spoke to at the Iowa State Fair this week. I'm still supportive because those Chinese have been screwing us for years and years. We're not just going to roll over, you know, like they'd like us to. Uh, I think probably we're in a hole right now, but I think things, if they go as they are, will get evened out. And a survey of 700 farmers in Iowa, Illinois, and Minnesota conducted by Iowa State University backs that up as well. They found a majority somewhat or strongly supportive of the U.S. tariffs on Chinese goods. That said, only 14% of the farmers surveyed said their farm operation will actually be better off financially a year from now because of this trade dispute. 20% said this same about U.S. agriculture overall, while more than three-quarters said American farmers will bear the brunt of the tariffs imposed by the Chinese government. So some interesting data there. We'd love to know your point of view. Hey, do you, with what's happening, you know, on your farm, NRA communities, do you still, still support President Trump, what he's trying to do with China? Or are you starting to go, you know what, I've had enough of this trade war. I'm going to support somebody else. The problem is, who would that be? I mean, is there a Democrat out there that actually understands ag right now that's running for president, gets middle America? Kamala Harris doesn't. Elizabeth Warren doesn't. So it'll be interesting to see how that shows up.